It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 347 for June 16th, 2013. This week, if you're a photographer, just wait until you see what Adobe Lightroom did this week. It's probably a safe bet that your files aren't as safe as you think they are, especially if you own a business. In short circuits, what's this spy doing on my phone? Google finds its ways, unintended consequences of hands-free devices, and radio killer Pandora buys a radio station. When Adobe Lightroom first hit the market, there wasn't a lot to differentiate it from other offerings that were available at the time. Since then, it has become an important part of any professional or serious amateur photographer's toolkit. With version 5, it has become indispensable. Version 5 was released last week, and after using the public beta for a few weeks, I was able to start working with the final gold code on Friday before it was released. If you're a photographer, you're going to want this. The only potential problem is whether Lightroom 5 will work on your computer. Whether you use a PC or a Mac, you need a 64-bit processor. Windows users need at least Windows 7 with Service Pack 1. Mac users need at least Lion, that's OS 10 10.7. Adobe describes the requirements in a graphic you'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website. The requirements are substantial, for both platforms, but then this is an uncommonly powerful application. Unlike the components of Creative Cloud, Lightroom will continue to be available as a standalone application with what's called a perpetual license, meaning that once you buy the software, you'll be able to continue using it indefinitely. A new license costs $150. Upgrades from any previous version all the way back to version 1 are $80. And Lightroom is automatically included if you're a member of Creative Cloud. Most existing plugins that worked with Lightroom 4 will continue to work with Lightroom 5. Many of the plugin manufacturers, though, are scrambling to create versions that will work without an Adobe product. That's because of the marketing change Adobe is making for the upcoming version of Creative Cloud. All Adobe products except Lightroom will be available only by subscription. AlienSkin, for example, says that they plan to stick with the traditional software model, for example, that means you can buy SnapArt 3 and you own it forever. Uh, there I'm quoting Alien Skin founder Jeff Butterworth. Butterworth says that Exposure 5, which was also released this week, is Alien Skin's first product that can run as a standalone application. Users will be able to run it inside Photoshop, Lightroom, or Aperture, or by itself. Butterworth says that's the plan for all of the company's products. I started playing with Exposure 5 this week, but I haven't looked at it enough to really give you an idea of what's new, so we'll do that in a later program. The new version of Lightroom, though, includes several new major features and 50 or more improvements that Adobe categorizes as just-do-it changes. What this means is that Adobe receives a request from the user community or one of the developers recognizes the need for a small improvement. If it's something that can be added quickly and easily, the developer just does it hence the name. For example, Lightroom has never supported PNG files. That was probably an oversight, but it had never been remedied. Until now. Lightroom now does support 
PNG files, and it was a just-do-it edition. For this first-look review, I thought selecting three of the primary big-deal improvements would be appropriate. These are radial filters, upright, and the improved spot removal tool. You're going to find three images on the TechBiter Worldwide website, one of a flower, one of the inside of a mall, and one of a flamingo at the Columbus Zoo. I found the flower at Inniswood Metro Gardens, one of my favorite places to relax with a camera. Because it's a raw image, it's a little bit soft. There's also not much to differentiate between the center of the plant and the leaves, so I figured that would be a perfect candidate for Lightroom's new radial filter, which allows you to apply specific lightening or darkening to round areas or oval areas of an image. I used two radial filters to modify the image, both more or less centered on the flower. One acted on everything outside the center of the flower and reduced the exposure by about one stop, dropped the clarity, and decreased the color saturation a bit. The other acted on a slightly smaller area at the center of the flower to increase sharpness. Then I cropped the photo slightly to place the flower part in the lower left part of the frame. I think the result is a lot more dramatic and it's more like what I saw when I was standing there. The second image is a handheld shot in a mall. I didn't have the camera exactly level. Everything's leaning just a little bit to the left. The skylight at the top of the image doesn't have much detail because it's so bright and the foreground is too dark. Ah, a job for Lightroom's upright and a graduated filter or two. When you see the after picture, the differences are subtle. The amazing new upright tool took care of the leaning problem and because the view is so monochromatic, I boosted the overall color saturation a bit. Final steps involved adding a graduated filter at the top to darken the overly bright skylight, and another graduated filter at the bottom to slightly lighten the dark carpeting. Then I added two more graduated filters, top left and top right, to reduce the effect of the first filters darkening on the areas that were actually inside the building in the hallway. In image number three, a flamingo from the Columbus Zoo. Not a bad image as it is, but there was another flamingo that bothered me. This flamingo was partially cropped away. It was on the right edge of the image. It was just there. Didn't look right. Previously, the spot removal tool could be used only to define circular areas, and the flamingo decidedly is not circular. In version 5, you can simply paint on a shape and make it any shape you want. This flamingo I didn't want is rather big, and it's right at the edge of the image, so it took more than a single painted-on spot remover. The first pass removed the legs. The next removed the bird's body. After that, I used it a few more times to touch up some of the distracting light spots on the ground, leaves and things like that. The final step, a small radial filter to lighten the main flamingo's head just a little bit. Now, today's program isn't a full review of Lightroom 5. That will come later. What is clear from working with the beta version and now the final version that's in stores and available for download is that Adobe has once again raised the bar for an application that has no peer when it comes to organizing large numbers of photographs and improving the images so that amateur and professional photographers can turn problem photos into acceptable images and convert those really good images into spectacular images. B. 
BYOD. That's the new rallying call at lots of offices. Bring your own device. Smartphones, tablets, other portable devices are flooding offices. As a result, they are creating unprecedented dangers. This is true in large companies, some of which are reasonably ready to deal with the threat, and in smaller companies, most of which have no plan to deal with it. Just how real is this problem? Well, recently, Symantec and Ponemon Institute released the 2013 Cost of Data Breach Security Report. The study shows that data breaches cost an average of $5.4 million apiece to remediate. In most cases, the result turns out to be a human error or a system problem. Issues included employee mishandling of confidential data, lack of system controls, and violations of industry and government regulations. I talked with Route 1 CEO Tony Basseri at his office in Toronto. Having worked with the U.S. Departments of Defense and Homeland Security, as well as the Canadian Federal Office of Privacy Commissioner, Basseri knows something about data security and what concerns him the most are situations in which proprietary data is taken outside the company's firewall. And although many people think that simply encrypting data is sufficient to protect it, Busseri says it's not. Two weeks ago, on a related topic, I described OWASP, the Open Web Application Security Project. OWASP has published every year for about the past 10 years a list of the top 10 website security threats. The top threat is almost always an injection attack, which is one of the easier threats to protect against. Yet this is what the organization considers still to be the number one threat after 10 years of doing these reports. I asked Basari what he makes of that. We being uh, big business and government in a lot of cases at all, at all the different levels um, are relying upon policy or human behavior to be perfect to ensure that we don't create a data breach or a malicious attack. And I think the report you're referring to, again, just highlights this, that um, when a human being, whether they're intentionally doing something bad or not, or they just, they, they, they're too busy and they forget to do something, the simplest of attacks can create great damage. And I, it just highlights for me again that we need to, as a nation, move away from what I call policy uh, defense into a technology defense approach. And that should be our first line of defense, is using technology that does not, I underline not, create additional vulnerabilities in using it. Um, and the, the great example here is we live in a world today where working from the office is only part of our role um, because we're mobile and whether it's at a hotel or whether it's at a client site or whatever the scenario you can think about, uh, we are mobile and we need to have technology that supports that mobility um, and gives us the tools to do our jobs or perform the service we need to do but we can't create incremental risk that the underlying networks and the data within the networks can be breached or the bad guys can get in. And unfortunately, we've quickly adopted um, new technologies or approaches that are creating new vulnerabilities and dramatic ones. And uh, great examples are bring your own device or the, the acronym BYOD or whether it's cloud computing. All these things are meant to make life easier for organizations and its administrator and give greater functionality to the worker um, or person that's attached with the, the organization. Unfortunately, in quickly adopting them, we've forgotten some of the security aspects and we've created huge new vulnerabilities where even the simplest attacks, to go back to your question, can cause great, great damage. The, actually, the, the, uh, you know, the web and the, the underlying Internet 
were never really designed with security in mind. All this security stuff is kind of bolted on as an afterthought. Uh, that has to be part of the problem, isn't it? Well, I, 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 the Internet really is a communications medium. The, what, what it's delivered through that and how it's delivered then is up to the enterprise to manage from my perspective. Um, and simply put, um, it, it is a great new way to, to provide information and data real-time um, or access, and it, it levels the playing field for a small company to a big company from someone who lives um, in a rural setting to an urban setting. Um, but again, we, we come back to the fact that just because it's technology, it's almost like we believe that if the word technology is there, there's some level of security that comes with it. I think the average person would assume that if the name IBM or Cisco is used, that whatever product they're offering, we, we just believe in the size of these organizations to deliver it securely. Um, and that's a major, major challenge. And so I don't see the Internet in itself as a problem. It's how we use it. Um, and it's how we expose data uh, as organizations that's really the greatest problem. I, I, I can't uh, criticize the intermediary or the medium, let's call it. Um, I definitely can criticize how or we, we use it. And so I, I, I just come back to this central theme that um, we think it's, it's okay not to do a good job authenticating uh, the individual or ensuring it's you before we give you certain access or entitlements. That's unacceptable. Um, we, we, we think it's okay that data um, should move with us. And whether it's encrypted or not, we, we, in saying that it's okay, we lose control of it when it comes out of our, of our firewalls or the, the protected area. And it goes on to people's personal devices. And we just we trust that they're going to bring it back in and not carry a copy of it on their machine. Before we get into to where data resides and, uh, and why it shouldn't end up on some of these little portable devices, let's talk a little bit about user authentication, which is kind of an ongoing problem. Lots of companies that have policies that you know, maybe require a password has to be changed every 30 days or every 45 days, and the password has to be a certain length, has to have upper and lower case, has to have symbols in it, has to have numbers in it. As a result, people can't remember their password. They write it down, which is the one thing we tell people never ever to do. This whole thing of usernames and passwords just seems like antiquated technology. Is there anything better on the horizon? Well, you know, I, I guess first of all, I, I, I want to highlight one of the words you used in your, your question or uh, comment there, um, and that was policy. Again, we're, we're asking human beings to do something that's perfect in writing, um, but as human beings, inevitably, we're going to fail in its execution. And so regardless of the technology or approach being deployed, if its deployment relies upon policy, it's not going to work. It's not going to be bulletproof. And that's just inherently because we're human beings. Because in itself, username and password is a single factor of authentication. can be as complex or simple as you want it to be. But in all cases, if used the wrong way, it will not be effective. And so that would be my first criticism of this, is that um, we again rely upon textbooks and teaching to, to try and have us be perfect in the adoption of an approach, and that's where it fails. Authentication is principally along the lines of three different factors. Something you know, like, like a username and password. Something that you have, often it's, a, it's something physical like a device, an enabling device, or something that you are. 
and we often think of that as a fingerprint or retina scan, but it's something that's specific to who I am. And those are the, the traditional three factors of authentication. What we know in practice is the more factors that are used in that authentication, the more secure you're going to be. So if we only use username and, and, uh, username and password, a single factor, that is a risk. Even if we simply use the fingerprint scan in itself, that still is only a single factor. At a minimum, two factors should be deployed. Single factor of authentication isn't the enough. The other concern in that, that you had discussed is data on on portable devices. Now, a decade ago, mobile devices were not much more than toys, really, but Today, they are integral parts of so many organizations, uh, the smartphone, the tablet, uh, all the other things you can carry into the office. And some IT directors actually are encouraging people to do this kind of thing. Others, uh, Other companies say, if you bring your own device, fine, you can bring it. Do not connect it to our network. Don't put any of our data on it. Yeah. In this kind of free-for-all scenario, uh, how do you protect the company's data? We go with the simplest of models, and that is bring whatever device you want, but use the technology that gives access to the information to people but doesn't bring the information right onto their device. See, we, we've just accepted in today's paradigm that the only way we can give access to people to data when they're mobile is that that data has to be passed through some type of protocol to their device, that it has to come with them. And if we think back, if we go back to the future some 30 years ago, maybe even 35 years ago, and we think of the mainframe computer and a dummy terminal, we gave people a lot of access to information, but it sat all on one big box. And we've forgotten some of those principles. And so I'm not suggesting it should be a mainframe with a bunch of screens and keyboards attached with long cords, but I am saying there's a concept there that, that create great safeguards and didn't expose the organization to losing control of its data. And in today's world, again, use the device you want, but use a technology that allows you to see or access that information, but it actually isn't there with you. You think it, you think it is, but it's not. And so our, our approach to the marketplace is we have a solution or solutions that rely upon two factors of authentication, rely upon giving you access to the data or certain entitlements, but that underlying information and data is staying within the network, and you're basically just seeing a picture of it. And your keystrokes or, or mouse movements or tablet movements are being sent back securely and actually transacted within that secure environment and not actually on the tablet or the MacBook or the laptop or the PC where you're working from such that if you had to immediately end your session, no information resides on that asset. I'm, I'm sure there are a lot of people listening who say, yeah, that, that's really a good idea. I should do that someday, and, uh, but I'm busy with other things right now. Well, you know, th this is an interesting thing. Um, it, it really doesn't matter how big or small you are as the entity. Let, let's say I'm a company with $3 million of revenue and five employees but I might have information related to a, a, a massive uh, Fortune 500 company that in itself, that one client bit of information could cost tens or hundreds of millions of dollars in, in lost money. So I, I guess I would say that the risk whether you, is the same whether you're big or small. 
and that is ultimately your client's information or your employee's information because it could be SSN information, banking information, etc., such that people can create fake profiles and we know what happens in that case. When someone's inside our network, we may not know they're there. And so we may say, oh, we, we saw a vulnerability, we've closed it up and there's limited damage or there's none at all. And two years from now could be the time when that, that breach and that part of it sitting quietly latent inside your network goes to work. And sometimes it's very hard to quantify, therefore, the impact in a short window because breaches aren't just immediate. It's once, and, and unfortunately, we only know sometimes when there are the breaches. It's a, it's a scary proposition that we, lacks, we lack the knowledge quite often of when someone's inside. But, we, you know, classically, we're seeing breaches for corporations. Uh, costing them in the millions of dollars. So the bottom line here is pay me now or pay me later, the old uh, oil filter thing? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. And I I can't – if you say I've adopted a BYOD program in the first four months, everything's been tight and fine, I think you're being horribly naive if you say, well, that's that's the litmus test, um, deploying it the right way. It's just not the way that there are clearly hackers and bad guys, quote unquote, that want to move quickly. They move, move in, move out, and off they go. Um, there are others that that slowly extract information um, or quietly copy information and, and push it out, and you don't even know that they've used that employee information to create fake profiles, fake loans, fake passports, whatever. Um, and that damage could take two to five years to fully show up. So. I, I, again, I think we need to be very cautious when we make quick statements about we've been able to successfully adopt a, a bring-your-own-device strategy um, or a cloud computing strategy because security breaches in themselves can take time to manifest and the full impact to be known. That's Tony Baseri, CEO of Route One, a data security company in Toronto. You'll find a link to the Route One website on the TechBiter Worldwide website. In short circuits, what's this spy doing on my phone? And no, this isn't a story about the National Security Agency. Although Willie Sutton is credited, probably inaccurately, for claiming that he robbed banks because that's where the money is, this forms the basis for why our electronic devices are the targets of so much malware. So just how safe is your phone? Kaspersky, a provider of security applications, says that it has found the most complex Android malware it's ever seen. Even allowing for some marketing hyperbole in the announcement, it's worth understanding what's going on here. The company calls the exploit Backdoor Android OS Obad A. It adds intentional errors to what's called the Android Manifest file, and this allows the operating system to run an executable file that shouldn't even work. The malware can then obtain device administrator status, and by using another security flaw, it keeps itself from being shown in the list of running applications. And if you think that might make the application unremovable, you're right. Once it's running, the malware encrypts its own data using part of Facebook's home page as the encryption key. And that's not all the crooks have in store for your now defenseless phone. The malware's command and control center tells your phone to start sending expensive text messages using the SMS protocol. 
If there's any good news here, it's this. The incidence of this infection is very low right now, and most of the victims are in Russia. But these things don't stay put, and they're not affected by national boundaries. In many ways, this complex infection resembles the kind of malware that generally is used to attack desktop and notebook computers. The underlying lesson for smartphone manufacturers is that mobile phones have become a sufficiently large target that they're inviting to the most talented cyber crooks who take the time to write sophisticated malware. Android would seem to have a lot of work to do because of the astonishing number of defects that this series of exploits uses to infect phones. On phones, most malware has been targeted on a single security flaw, but computer infections try many techniques, and that's what this new smartphone application is doing. Maybe you've heard of Waze. W-A-Z-E.com. Maybe you even use it. If you haven't heard of it before, that's about to change because Google just bought the startup for $1 billion. The Israel-based service calls itself the world's fastest-growing community-based traffic and navigation app. You're invited to join other drivers in your area who share real-time traffic and road information, saving everybody gas and money on their daily commute. Or maybe it's just another driver distraction that will lead to more collisions, injuries, and delays. Imagine, the Waze website says breathlessly, if a website can do that, 30 million drivers out on the roads working together towards a common goal to outsmart traffic and get everyone the best route to work and back every day. The Waze driver-edited maps are supposed to alert others before they encounter police. Could that be a code word for police radar? or before they encounter accidents or road hazards or traffic jams. All of this information is to be shared in real time, so Waze says it's like a personal heads-up from a few million of your friends on the road. Waze runs on Apple and Android devices. According to the New York Times, Waze already has about 50 million users worldwide, and about 15 million people use the system at least once a month. Waze uses GPS to track users' movements, and it's probably tracking some of the same people who protest government surveillance, and then report the information about movements back to Waze. The service generates information about roads and traffic. That part wouldn't distract drivers, but users can add their own information, and that clearly would be a distraction. Google already has a Maps service, but the company says Waze will operate separately from the Maps division. It will, however, feed traffic data to Google Maps. ways maybe you use it with a hands-free device. Maybe that's not so good. 
Many states already have laws that forbid the use of cell phones that the user must hold, but permits hands-free systems. Police, amateur radio operators, and truck-based service technicians are allowed to use two-way radios with handheld microphones, though. That's always seemed to me to be a disconnect. Hands-free devices were supposed to be less distracting and less dangerous than phones that had to be held. As it turns out, that's not true. This week, the American Automobile Association released a study that shows the reverse is true. Using hands-free devices that translate speech into text turns out to be more distracting, according to the AAA's Foundation for Highway Safety. Oops. Drivers who aren't distracted tend to have swivel heads. They look around. They check side streets as they approach. They look in the rearview mirror. But the study shows that drivers who are engaged with hands-free devices develop tunnel vision, rarely looking anywhere other than straight ahead, and checking the rearview mirror only infrequently. Estimates suggest that about 9 million cars currently have voice recognition systems. By 2018, more than 60 million vehicles will have such devices. Nearly all new cars sold today make it possible to link a cell phone to the vehicle's built-in computing system so you can check voicemail, send text messages, or even order a pizza from your car. In the old days, amateur radio operators were expressly prohibited from using their radios to order a pizza. But that's another story. The study explains the scientific reasoning behind the conclusions. Hands-free devices that convert speech to text and vice versa create what's called a cognitive distraction because the speech processing part of the brain is so busy dealing with the system that the driver's attention, ability to process events as they occur, and reaction time all suffer. In other words, those of us who think we are really good at multitasking really aren't so good at multitasking. A computer that seems to be performing multiple tasks at the same time actually gives each task a tiny bit of time sequentially. And because this happens so fast, the computer seems to be doing several things at once. We humans do the same thing, but we're a lot slower. And that accounts for the significant performance degradation reported by the study conducted by researchers at the University of Utah. The online music streaming service Pandora has just bought a radio station from Clear Channel, KXMZ in Rapid City, South Dakota. Rapid City is not exactly a major market that radio professionals aspire to reach, so Pandora isn't going to pick up a lot of listeners in this, the nation's 255th largest radio market. But the deal still makes sense. Stick with me a second and I'll explain. Pandora has about 70 million online listeners. Now, if everybody in Rapid City, everybody, every single person suddenly started listening to KXMC, Pandora would gain about 70,000 listeners. The entire metro area, well, that's just over 100,000 residents. So why did Pandora want a terrestrial radio station? The answer, as it often happens, is pretty simple. Pandora says the American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers, known as ASCAP, charges it higher licensing fees than it charges radio stations. And Pandora says that ASCAP also allows artists to opt out of having their music played on Pandora. Buying the radio station, Pandora believes, will resolve both issues because ASCAP allows broadcasters to offer separate online-only streams covered by 
lower rates. In fact, Clear Channel uses this policy for its iHeartRadio service. Pandora's Assistant General Counsel Christopher Harrison says that ASCAP has violated the terms of its previous antitrust consent decree by allowing publishers to remove artists' works from Pandora while continuing to make them available to competing services such as iHeartRadio. Pandora. Radio stations probably figure that that's a pretty aptly named service. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.